Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. This week we go to another listener request. This film was requested by two guys, Mark and Josh. We are fulfilling your wish and talking about 1982's Slumber Party Massacre. I'm sorry, the Slumber Party Massacre today. Correct. Now, this movie is kind of iconic. I mean, it is iconic. It's the first of the series of Slumber Party Massacres, of which there are three. And apparently there's more of what you might call a sextilogy. What do you call it with six? Decology? Dec- I don't know. Six of them. There's six movies that are of the Roger Corman-produced Massacre series. Slumber Party Massacre 1, 2, and 3. And then Sorority House Massacre 1, 2, and 3, which are kind of tangentially related to this. They kind of feed off of each other, and they were produced by, they're all produced by Roger Corman. The one shocking thing about this film is that it is the first horror series to be written and directed by women. Uh-huh. I think all three in this set of Slumber Party Massacres were directed by women. And the writer of this film is none other than a feminist writer, Rita Mae Brown. Originally wrote the screenplay titled Sleepless Nights, and she intended it to be a parody of slasher films. However, there was a woman looking to make her directorial debut. Uh, She was an editor and writer uh, in Hollywood, got involved with a friend of Roger Corman, and he passed her a bunch of scripts, and she picked this one out of the lineup, They retitled it The Slumber Party Massacre, and they shot it just as a strict horror film in Roger Corman fashion. Although she said she didn't find the original very funny (laughs) and had to actually insert comedic elements into it. So it has an odd pedigree, this film. I just remember it as a kid passing by it on the shelves. Weirdly enough, this is exactly the kind of movie that we would have picked up from our Friday night jaunts to the video store, me and my friends, when we would do what we called Stupid Movie Night. Mm-hmm. And we would mostly pick up either goofy 80s sex comedies or dumb-looking 80s horror films. And this movie has a poster slash cover art that is kind of unmatched. <laughs> it's the most suggestive thing you could imagine. There is uh, four women almost naked, laying down on the ground, um, and there's a guy standing over them, his legs spread, and there's a drill coming down between his legs towards one of the women, especially, who is laying down on the ground with her mouth open. I mean, all you need is just something dripping off of this drill, like blood, say, to just complete the whole (laughs) (laughs) picture of what I feel like this poster is going for and succeeds in. So anyway, yeah, I used to pass by this all the time on the shelves, and I don't know why we never picked it up and watched it, but this is one of the few we didn't. I'm a big fan of Sorority House Massacre 2, which we've done on this show, and you got to go back and listen yeah. to that. It's one of my all-time favorite stupid horror movies, and that actually pulls from this film. It takes footage from this movie and repurposes it as a flashback sequence. Right, but like out of context, right? Oh, completely. Like... <laughs> completely. Different, different storyline, different whatever. It's just like typical Roger Corman, right? Hey, we've got this footage from a movie we own. Why don't you just chuck it in and use it however you want? But I found Sorority House Massacre 2 infinitely more entertaining than this movie. I'm just going to come right out and yeah. say it right there. 
Uh, grossed $3.6 million at the box office on a budget of $220,000. Critical reviews are not great, but apparently it's kind of a cult classic in certain circles. Craig, how about you? We'll, we'll get to it. How about you? How did you feel? Uh, what's your background? Had you seen this before? You have to have seen this before. No, I don't think so. Um, I know that there is one part that I saw, but I really think that I had just seen that one part, and I don't remember if it was in some kind of compilation of like stupid scenes or if I just happened to see that it was on cable and switched to it for a second and just saw this one part. Um, but it was so dumb. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know if I realized that it was from this movie, but when I was watching the movie, I was like, Oh, I have seen this part. It's so stupid. Uh, yeah, no, I don't know. I, when we were kids, I wasn't as drawn to these movies that you could tell were going to be bad. Mm. I mean, I certainly inadvertently watched lots and lots of bad movies, but the ones that you could just tell from the box art that that's what it was going to be and that that's what it was kind of intended to be, I was more interested in being scared. Um, that's not to say that I didn't watch these types of movies on Up All Night all the time. I certainly did. Yeah. And uh, I do, you know, the... Okay, a couple of things. First of all, Rita Mae Brown. I'm, as an English teacher, I should be more familiar with her. I'm really more familiar just with her name um, and the fact that she's a feminist writer. Uh, she wrote Ruby Fruit Jungle, which has been on my to-read list for decades, and I just haven't gotten around to it. So it's crazy that a very serious, yeah. reputable feminist author wrote this exploitation film. Now, the fact that she intended it as parody makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. But then uh, the director, Amy Holden Jones, like you said, wanted to direct. Um, she was and remains successful, you know, as a technician, a camera person, a cinematographer. Um, but she's only directed four movies and one... I only knew one of those movies and I don't remember what year it came out but it starred Ali Sheedy and it was called Made to Order and my sister and I loved that movie <laughs> when we were growing up it's 80s and cheesy and stupid but it's got um, Ali Sheedy in it it's got Beverly D'Angelo in it it's a Cinderella story a reverse Cinderella story where this rich snobby socialite very badly behaved her fairy godmother in the form of Beverly D'Angelo comes and turns her, makes her poor, and she has to get a job as a maid. And of course, she learns the value of hard work and decency, and she finds love. And like, <laughs> <laughs> it's super corny, and I love it. But this director faced a lot of backlash for this movie because people said, you know, here you are a woman. There are so few women in horror, which is true. And so it's nice to see um, a project helmed by women. That's very refreshing. Right. But uh, it is classic slasher exploitation. Tons of boobs, um, you know, suggestive kills, 
and and I really enjoyed her response to the criticism. She basically just said, "That's not fair. Nobody criticizes men when they make these types of movies. Yeah. Why shouldn't I be able to do it?" You know, she's she was trying to launch a career as a director, and arguably she did. She didn't direct a lot more, but her other movies made money. They weren't huge, but they did fine. Um, and and so I appreciated that she pointed out that double standard. So what? I'm a woman. These types of movies sell. Roger Corman movies sell. That's what he does. He's in it to mm-hmm. make money. Um, he he pumps out cheap movies, um, usually with high entertainment value, not super high quality, but they make money. And uh, that you know she took advantage of that and so for that i applaud her the movie on the other hand sucks and <laughs> the reason that i think it sucks is because it's just completely paint by numbers mm. aside from the fact that for unexplained reasons this killer makes almost all of his kills with this ridiculously oversized industrial drill Aside from that, there's nothing unique about it. There's virtually no characterization whatever. It's just introducing a bunch of mid-20s playing high school kids, people, just lining them up for one kill after another. There's no mystery to who the killer is. He's just some random crazy-eyed guy with a giant drill who you see (laughs) (laughs) from the beginning, like there's no mystery of who it is. Um, The only backstory for the killer is that he's a psycho and he's killed people before and he's busted out of prison or the asylum or whatever and he's on the loose again. That's it. Then there's a slumber party and one by one everybody gets killed. That's it. (laughs) Like (laughs) There's nothing more to it. Um, and it was kind of frustrating. I mean, there are there are some fun kind of sight gags and some things, but uh, overall, I mean, the acting isn't good. The effects aren't good. The blood doesn't even. I mean, the 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 makeup effects of the wounds sometimes is okay, sometimes terrible. Clearly, just like painted on. Um, the blood doesn't even look like blood. It's just Cairo syrup and, like, I guess red food coloring, but it's not the color of blood at all. Uh, I don't know. The, here's You know what the best part about the movie is? I bet you can guess. It's not even an hour and a half. <laughs> but, damn it, does it not feel like two hours, though? I mean... It feels like at least an hour and a half. Oh, God. That's not necessarily to say that it's boring, because it does move. I mean, they line up like a dozen people to get killed, so you have a kill every couple, every few minutes. The body count is high in this movie, surprisingly yeah. high. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know... <sighs> what else we're going to say about really, it this could be our shortest episode ever and i'm really i'm really shocked <laughs> i thought we'd have more to say but i mean the reality is like you said there's no suspense there's no tension oh, i wasn't feeling any anyway Mm-mm. it's just oh here's this guy 
and this girl turned the corner, and there he is, and drill, and she's dead. Yeah. You know, it's a movie that feels like maybe it's trying to be Halloween, you know, because it takes place in the suburbs, and there's a slumber party instead of a babysitting gig, and there's a next-door neighbor who ends up popping over. But the honest-to-goodness truth is I couldn't even keep track of who is who. No, they all look the same. They all look the same. (laughs) There's nothing unique about any of them and then again uh, you know to come from a script from a writer who with some literary talent perhaps no i don't know you know that was the original script i'm sure it was modified over time oh yeah i'm sure so you know we can't really fault rita may brown for that but there's very little characterization i i think nothing that's that interesting you know it's just all these kind of typical girls yeah in high school who, who all, you know, as usual, look like they're 28 and not 18. There's nobody to root for? Like... No. There's no... Well, nobody stands out, right? You're right. And usually in these types of movies, you can kind of pick out who the final girl is. You know, there's there's one kind of sympathetic character or or virginly character or or something and and there's just not here i mean there are final girls of this large cast of young people most of them are dead by the end there are just a few left at the end and i suppose that you could argue there's one girl because she's new to town she's kind of an outcast that's the only reason that she's an outcast unless you read between (laughs) the lines and she's prettier than the rest of them. So <laughs> maybe maybe they're all jealous. I don't know. But there's really no focus on her character. It's just setting her apart from everybody else so that she can be in a different location across the street right. and come in. And, and, you know, we keep checking in on her and her sister just doing mundane things at their house and, like, Very mundane. like fighting with one another. Meanwhile, all of these girls, these teenage girls, look like they're old enough to teach high school. Mm-hmm. And the, the the younger sister, and I've seen this done in so many bad horror movies, they dress her super young and, like, put her in, like, I don't know, like, pigtails and stuff to suggest that... <laughs> and give her a lollipop. <laughs> yeah, a giant, like, a big oversized lollipop to lick on, on. while she looks at Playgirl... Like, oh my god, it's so silly. But she doesn't look any younger than the rest of them. No. And and then there's another woman, uh, a coach that apparently they all like. She's like their gym teacher or something. She is indistinguishable from the rest of them. Like, she could have just as easily played one of the teenagers. Yeah. Honestly, I wish that there were specific things that I could point to as interesting there's not. It just it opens up since suburbia. We literally see a newspaper headline that says mass murderer of five, Russ Thorne, escapes. And then the main character, Trish, takes her clothes off. Mm. And this is within the first three minutes. And so you yep. know immediately what's going on. And then, conveniently, Trish's parents are leaving for the weekend, but the not-at-all-creepy neighbor, Mr. Content, is going to be keeping an eye on her. And, uh, and like, God, why? Why so many stupid things? Like, like, this girl, Trish, woke up this day and apparently decided today... I'm a woman. 
and I am going to pack up all of my childhood things in a bag and throw them in the garbage for no reason other than that we get to see a creepy hand pull her Barbie doll out of the garbage can so that that can come back later. You have to imagine that maybe in the original script there was something of this. Maybe there was more character development and this this became a thematic element. But uh, I don't know. That's that's pure imagination. <laughs> yeah. Come with me if you'll be <laughs> in a world of pure imagination. Much better movie than this one. Oh, um, better. Yeah. And scarier. <laughs> <laughs> no joke. <laughs> oh, give me Gene Wilder over this guy any day. This guy wanders around. It was his first acting job. Big surprise. And it's so funny when you read the trivia, and you know a lot of this probably comes from the movie commentary, which I will never bother watching, but he mentioned that this being his first acting job, he spent all this time preparing for the role, read a book about a serial killer. Helter Skelter. Helter Skelter, and then um, decided that he needed to model his character after a peacock. Which is (laughs) funny, because I only read that after... But then, when I read it, I was like, oh, that's why he was walking like that. So (laughs) weird, right? (laughs) Dipping his head around and stuff. He doesn't say anything until towards the end. And then, apparently, he also isolated himself from the rest of the cast during the shooting, you know, to stay in his character. And it's it's just so cute to read that because this guy just... I know, it's so quaint. It's his first acting gig. He's trying to go all method on this horrible movie. It's hilarious. He's just bug-eyed looking around through this movie, like a peacock, I guess you could say. And he's always right there. And, like, there's no reason or explanation why he's targeting these girls. Like, I guess he just happens to know they're all going to be there. So he just, like, hides in the bushes where we can plainly see him as girls pour into this party. The first time we see him is when... So there's also a couple guys, Jeff and some other guy. I don't know. It doesn't matter because they have no character. But they're just walking along, like, on the high school campus, and they hit on, like, a line woman or something. Like, she's, like, repairing (laughs) the phones or whatever. You know, I've been having some ringing in my um, ear. I mean, in my phone. And I thought maybe a phone woman could help me. Uh, Are all phone women this pretty? I wouldn't know. Would you ever consider dating a younger man? I mean, you know what they say about younger men. Try it. You'll like it. I hadn't really thought about it. Well, my number's out of board. Your number is zero. She is nice, but shuts him down. And he, Jeff and the friend keep walking. The door of her van swings open, and somebody grabs her and pulls her from inside. Now, granted, this is midday like <laughs> prime daylight in the high in the parking lot of a high school pulls her in and she gets up and starts like pounding on the windows and screaming as these boys are walking away and they just don't notice <laughs> and she gets drilled in the forehead right there in the van in the parking lot Oh, man. And that's just that. Seriously, I don't know that there's any point. Like, no. The next thing is some girl's like, oh, I forgot my book in the gym. And so she runs back into the gym and he follows her in there and he chases her around there and then he drills her. Like, <laughs> it's not just that. It's like painfully long and boring. You know, she's hiding. And then we get, oh, God, five or six minutes 
of him full on poking around room to room, looking left and right, going back to the room, going back to where he was, standing there, looking left and right, looking down. I mean, oh my God. And unlike a lot of these movies, like we said earlier, there's no question who the killer is. Right. There's no attempt to make him... Mysterious. There's no There's no twist. There's no mystery or whatever. He's just a guy. And so he's not interesting to watch. <laughs> he's not even interesting to watch stalk these people. With a huge drill. Massive drill. And, you know, when this thing turns on, even the sound department got it wrong. I mean, this drill should be... What would it be, gas-powered? I mean, it would have to be loud as hell, but he's able to just kind of wander around with aplomb and uh, drill through people, which is a really awkward method of killing when you kind of get down to it. It it even plays out kind of awkward in the movie. People just get cornered in these situations where they can get drilled, you know? But a knife is a little more helpful and i think they even know this because there are times in the movie where he just swings the drill to cut somebody open Uh (laughs) right yeah but it's a metaphor i mean of course it's a metaphor well right i mean he even gets castrated at the end (laughs) yeah the drill drill gets castrated right (laughs) (laughs) so stupid Uh, there's a painful scene of them playing basketball like again for a good five minutes like i do not need to see Yeah, just so you can watch their boobies flopping around a little bit. And then there's a group shower scene where, you know, (laughs) some of them... And they're all just chatting in the shower, casually talking about this. Trish is going to have a party because her parents are gone or whatever. I did read... I didn't keep track of the actresses. A couple of these actresses, the actress uh, who played Valerie and, and one of the other actresses, were both in Sorority Babes at the Slime Ball Bolorama. Yeah, also a better movie. Which I never would have watched if you hadn't made me, but I really liked that movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So I saw, you know, just a snippet from an interview from one of these um, women who, and, and we've heard this before, you know, we talked to Linnea Quigley and um, this woman echoed what she told us that if you wanted to work during this time nudity was just expected you did it or you didn't work so they did it get jobs that other girls wouldn't get because you're right to to take your top off and that woman you're talking about is brink stevens and she is a she's been in a thousand of these movies she's known for being the girl taking her top off in these movies but actually she's not a bad actress either so she's one of these scream queen icons yeah and and she said that she's glad that she's of an age now that people don't want her to take her clothes off (laughs) (laughs) Um, but apparently i guess some of these women did object to the nudity so some of them put uh tape over their nipples so that uh they wouldn't be able to use any footage of them that showed them from the front. So some of them you only see from the back. But I mean, again, it's just exploitation, which is fine. I mean, these are beautiful young women in the prime of their life. They look great. If you're into that, great. I mean, this was part and parcel for the era and for the genre. So I'm not criticizing that. It's just... In fact, I celebrate and applaud that in some movies. But in this... 
I mean, it's just, like I said, it's just paint by numbers. It's just like, okay, kill somebody. Okay, boobs. Okay, somebody stalking. Like, Well, and even that wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't just so darn boring. I, I mean, I wasn't interested in any of these characters. I had no, even their banter. Everything's quite subdued, actually. Like, there's no drama going on. Like, there's no boyfriend jealous of some girl or guys who are sneaking over. I mean, the two guys kind of sneak over, right? They pop over, they leer in the window a little bit, but then the driller killer gets one of them outside before he even makes it in. And, uh, you know, there's a pizza delivery guy who gets drilled through the eyes, but you don't even see it. You just see the aftermath. Which doesn't even make sense. No. How would the pizza guy be standing there holding the pizza with his eyeballs drilled out (laughs) until they opened the door and he fell inside? (laughs) And then, then of course, you know, they know there's a killer. So one of the girls, Trish, was already on the phone with their coach because they're having this big debate about basketball scores from the game last night. Like, what? Who are these (laughs) girls? I didn't know these girls. <laughs> I mean, the the worst thing about it is that they know there's a killer and they don't leave the house. Do they try to call the cops? Is they try. A, oh. They she she tries. She gets the cops on the phone, but she dilly dallies in giving the address. And so by the time she starts to give the address, the killer cuts the phone line. But yeah, like at that point, there are still I don't know probably four or five girls at least (laughs) and the boys are there and of course they have the same stupid discussions that people always have in these movies where the boys are like we should go for help and trish is like well maybe we should just all stay together uh yeah you think like Mm, there's one guy one guy and like (laughs) 25 of you like Surely, I don't know. But so the boys decide that they're going to go out separately and look for help. And somehow, even though they run out of opposite ends of the house, they both end up getting killed within seconds of running outside. Yeah. It's just This guy can be anywhere. And then they're, they're lurking. You know, they're just kind of lurking in the house. Like I said, Valerie, the new girl, and her sister are like kind of watching from across the street and they maybe hear some screaming and they maybe hear a drill but they're not really all that concerned and like there's dumb stuff where at one point one of the boys runs to their house and is pounding on the door as the driller killer is coming up right behind them uh him and um he's pounding on the door and screaming but valerie doesn't know that because she's watching a horror movie in which other people are pounding and screaming so she doesn't go to the door, and he gets killed, and uh, eventually they make their way over there. But meanwhile, the other girls are just kind of cowering in their lingerie. My, uh, The part that I remembered seeing was a part where they're kind of creeping around, and they stumble across the pizza guy, and they're like, maybe he's not really dead, even though he's been laying there for half an hour with his eyeballs drilled out no I'm I'm sure he's fine and one of them reaches down and was like no he's already getting cold and another girl's like is the pizza and she literally pulls the pizza out from under the dead body sits it on top of the dead body and is like 
when I get really nervous, the only thing that makes me feel better is if I eat. So she sits there and eats pizza off of the dead pizza guy. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Second seconds later, there's a knock on the door, and they're like, "Maybe it's the police." And so the pizza girl <laughs> gets up and opens the door, and of course, it's just the killer right there. And so yep. he slices her across the abdomen, and she's dead. <sighs> At which point, there are only a couple of them left: um, Trish and Kim. I liked Kim. I looked at her uh, IMDb page. She she's been in a lot of stuff. She has an interesting face. But again, they're just cowering. Valerie comes over and is like coming through the house, looking for calling for them, and they're like, "We we can't call back because um, then maybe the killer will know where we are." And what if Valerie and the killer are friends? Like, <laughs> <laughs> where did that come from? <laughs> so Valerie just leaves having not seen anything, I guess, and these two girls are just cowering in a bedroom. The killer sneaks in a window right behind them. Yes. And kills one Ugh. of them. I don't know. It's so dumb. I mean, he just he just keeps <laughs> showing up and killing people. The end. And then, at the end, there's a few of them left. There's Trish, Valerie, and her annoying little sister, Courtney, and uh, the coach shows up. I guess she was worried or she really, really needed them to know the basketball score. So she shows up. Mm. The only other gag that I thought was funny is when Valerie and Courtney are looking around the house, Courtney wants to steal beer out of the refrigerator and Valerie keeps going like, no, no, you can't. And so Courtney keeps opening the door but not looking in there. And every time she opens it, Kim's body is in there and falls out a little bit. And then Courtney closes the door and she goes back in. And she opens it again and Kim's body falls out a little bit and then she goes back in. That was kind of funny. Yeah, that's kind of classic though. I mean, I don't know if this was the first time we've seen that gag, but... No. Well, it's not the first time we've seen that gag, but I don't know if it was the first time it ever appeared in a movie or not. Yeah, there's that gag. Then there's the little gags where, like, uh, oh, they're making Kool-Aid, so it's like mixing up some blood-red liquid, or somebody drops a glass of wine on the floor, which, you know, splashes red red blood-looking stuff, you know, or it cuts from the drill to them blending. Yeah. Oh, there's a cat scare. There's, there's a, a cat, cat scare. scare. There's another scare where out of nowhere they hear shattering glass and then they go in the kitchen and it's the coffee pot that Kim has left on the stove burner, a glass coffee pot. Mm. And she's like, oh, darn it, I left the burner on. And then she picks up the coffee pot and holds it by the bottom. <laughs> uh, I thought that just shattered because it was hot. It's yeah. lazy... It's dumb. It gets to the end, and there's nothing really even to say about the end. Like, well, there's a little fight. You think the coach is going to be the hero, and she kind of is for a second, but then he gets her, and then they have a fight out by the pool, which I also... So apparently, initially, they shot the um, finale indoors in the same room where they'd been shooting everything else, and it was just ho-hum, which, you know, is par for the course with this movie. Um, but Roger Corman saw the initial cut and liked it. And so he threw a little bit more money at him and said, reshoot the end, make it more exciting. And so they took it outside by the pool. And I thought this was hilarious because Valerie is wielding a machete. And she's, like, backing up the killer 
and he looks down like he's like right on the edge of the pool like he's afraid he's going to fall in or something but it's as though it's as though he couldn't just sidestep away from it like I know right like, take <laughs> a step to direction. the left like, <laughs> you don't exactly. have to keep going directly into the pool <laughs> but she swings her machete and she cuts off the tip of his drill hardy har har <laughs> And then, I don't know, she slashes him and he goes in the pool. Yeah, cuts off his hand. He falls in the pool. Then they all embrace and you think he's dead. But then he crawls out handless, silently, comes at them again. I think gets one of them. And then he comes leaping towards, who was it? Was it her? Valerie? I don't know. There's only a few of them. There's Valerie, and Trish. That's it. One of the three of them, had, you know, is laying on the ground, has the it's machete Valerie. in her hand, and whips it, whips it around, and he basically leaps on this machete, impales himself on it. Yeah, yeah. And then you just see, you just see the three, yeah, the three remaining girls all just laying on the ground by themselves, sobbing, and you hear police sirens, and then the credits roll. Like, uh, it, it was. And you get more, you know, you get the. The end credits and the beautiful score that we've been treated to, which is pretty typical for these horror films. The score was done by the, I think it was the producer's brother or something, director's brother, Ralph Jones, and he recorded the whole thing on a tiny little Casio synthesizer. It sounds like it, mm-hmm. but it's you know it's pretty typical for the era. It kind of set a stage anyway. Actually, it reminds me a lot of, of the scores in these Roger Corman horror movies that were done around this time. So I can't fault it too much for that. It wasn't it wasn't terrible, but uh, it wasn't great. <laughs> uh, yeah, according to the testimony of the people who worked on it, the director, the director went to one of the first screenings, and she was just shocked when, from the very beginning, the audience reacted to it really well. They were screaming and laughing and you know yelling at the screen and um just having a great time and and she said that she went out into the lobby because that's where roger corman was um he he wasn't watching the film he was just listening to the audience reaction and she went out and she's like what is going on what have we done and and he said something like we just had the best opening was it new line that did this i don't remember new world new world new world we just we just had the best new world uh opening in history hard to believe it it (laughs) is i mean i i get it i guess In, in the right context if you as i've said a bazillion times if you were going to the theater with a big audience and you were all in it for the fun of it and people were you know screaming and shouting things at the screen i can see how the atmosphere would elevate the movie in some way um but without that there's really nothing good to say about it. There are no, no standout performances. There are no standout kills or effects. Um, it's all pretty tame. I mean, he just he either drills people or he slashes them with the drill. Or every once in a while, somebody will come at him with a knife and he'll get the knife away from them and stab them. But that's it. Nothing creative, nothing innovative. 
Um, really a pretty laughable performance by the guy who plays the killer. I don't want to be overly critical. It was, you know, it's crappy material, so it's not like he had much to work with, and apparently he really tried. So I don't mean to be critical in that way, but the end product is just goofy. Like, and goofy, not even in really a fun or clever way. That's the most disappointing part about it, I think, is it's just not that fun. I wish it could be fun. I mean, again, if I maybe if maybe like you said, if I'd watched it with my friends back in high school together, we we might have had some fun with it. But it's it's almost just too boring for that, really. <laughs> yeah, and I remember I don't remember particularly loving the second one, but if memory serves, it was way better than this one. I mean, it was still a bad slasher movie, but it was more fun. That's the one where the the driller killer is is a guitar player all, all i remember is these girls like they buy an old house they're gonna renovate it where there were where there were murders and what i remember not because i had seen the first movie but talking with you about it they do use the footage from this movie but they change the backstory entirely they like but you're thinking of you're thinking of sorority house massacre too am i yeah. I must be. Summer Party Massacre 2 was super campy, and I think we should do it sometime. The killer in that has a has a drill on the end of a guitar. He's like a ghostly, supernatural, hard rocker or heavy metal dude. I can see in my mind the box art um, with the guy with the guitar with the drill on the end. And I remember that one being... Pretty campy, but I'm certainly more fun than this. But yeah, you're talking about Sorority House Massacre 2, which is one of my favorite movies. And you're right, it, it the, the acting is terrible. It's also pretty pedestrian, but it just has a charm to it and a fun aspect to it that this one doesn't. That one's directed by Jim Wynorski, one of my one of my all-time. Oh, faves, okay. So. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I feel like we're being totally lame and and have nothing interesting <laughs> to say. I'm sorry, audience, that you had to listen to us have nothing to say about this movie. Mark and Josh probably would have had we should have had them on here to chat with us we about should this have. movie. There is apparently a remake in the works, which can uh, only be better than this. Uh, It's supposed to come out this year by a director named uh, Danishka Esterhazy, and I think she did um, a few horror movies, including the Banana Splits movie from 2019, about like a sort of... I saw that. Is it good? (laughs) It's campy and fun. It's about uh, animatronics that come alive and kill people, right? That's cool. (laughs) <laughs> and it's it's based on um, a kid's cartoon, I think, from the 70s. Yeah, like Jim Henson thing. Yeah. It's silly and stupid, but I, I had fun watching it. Huh. I mean, are there any other movies we should talk about? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll see a couple of these uh, women again sometime soon, too, because the last I heard... And this has been probably a month ago, so it's probably over. Um, but last I heard, Linnea Quigley was shooting Sorority Babes 2. Oh, man, no so way. So maybe we'll get to see uh, a couple of these these ladies pop up reprising their roles. I don't know. But when I saw that that was shooting, it kind of made me 
excited. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it's going to be a lot more fun to watch than this movie was. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Thank you, Mark and Josh, for suggesting it. Nonetheless, this was a movie we were planning to get to eventually. Yeah. Fun to talk about. Nonetheless, it is a bit of history. You know, I mean, it is iconic again. I can say I've seen it now. Um, and that's good. And and when people ask, what about uh, Slumber Party Massacre? I've heard that's good. I can say, well. <laughs> <laughs> you like boobs? <laughs> yeah. Let me, let me give you a couple of other recommendations, maybe. <laughs> now, when I finally get around to teaching Ruby Fruit Jungle, I can tell my students the author also wrote the horror masterpiece Slumber Party Massacre. You could show it in school, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Movie day. (laughs) Uh, All right. Thank you again for your request. And uh, thank you, listeners, for for tuning in this week. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. Uh, You can search us online. Just Google Two Guys in a Chainsaw Podcast. Find our Facebook page, our webpage, our Twitter feed. Drop us a note there. Let us know what you thought of this episode and give us some suggestions for future episodes. We we do love doing requests. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys and a Chainsaw. Ah.